Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I am doing fantastic today, Tim. Thank you so much for asking. I hope everyone who's listening, I hope they're doing as fantastic as I'm doing uh, because we are gifted with a rare treat today. We have a couple of guests on who are ultimate survivors. We're really delighted to get the opportunity to hear their story and dig into what it takes to be a survivor and really handle yourself in the age of social media and regular media. But Tim, I can't handle myself at all without knowing how you're doing. How are you? I am doing great. Thanks a lot for asking. And I'm even better because we get to introduce this conversation with Tara Newell and Collier Landry of the Survivor Squad podcast. As you mentioned, they are both survivors and very personal crime stories to their lives. And they'll speak about that a little bit in the interview. And you can check out everything that they're doing at their new podcast at thesurvivorsquad.com. And Tim, if folks wanted to listen to this episode... Without the commercials and all of our episodes of all of our shows, including the brand new show, Dark Valley, without the commercials, where would one go? Well, our good listeners can sign up for Crawlspace Premium now on Apple Podcasts. But if you're not an Apple user, you can go to crawlspace.supportingcast.fm and sign up for the same product there. You get early releases, ad-free episodes, and our weekly bonus show that everybody loves. And that's all in addition to missing ad-free and the new show that you mentioned, Dark Valley, all ad-free. And we know that you can follow Tara Newell at Tara Newell pretty much on every platform on social media. You can also follow Collier Landry at Collier Landry. Tim, where can they follow us? Follow us at Crawlspace Podcast or Crawlspace Pod. Thanks a lot for listening, everybody. We'll be right back with Tara and Collier. And a thank you to our sponsors. Back to the program. Welcome to the podcast, Tara and Collier. How are you both doing today? We are doing good, right? We're doing great, man. Happy belated fourth. Yeah, happy belated fourth and happy belated birthday. Oh, thank you. Honestly, it's such a tremendous pleasure to have the both of you on the show. For real, like you guys are people that we look up to. It all kind of comes together and it's so amazing to speak with people like yourselves. And for like the handful of people who don't know who you are, do you mind just introducing yourself and a little bit of background? Yeah, sure. So I am Tara Newell. I am the survivor of Dirty John Meehan. I took him down in self-defense, killing him in self-defense. And it's blown up into a Bravo series, lots of documentaries, and really been publicized in the media. My name is Collier Landry. When I was 11 years old, my father murdered my mother. I witnessed it happen, and I um, convinced one detective that I was right. And over 25 days, myself and this detective solved my mother's murder and located her body in another state. And um, I testified against my father at trial and put him in prison where he still is to this day. I made a documentary called A Murder in Mansfield, and I host a podcast called Moving Past Trauma, and I am the co-host of The Survivor Squad with Tara Newell. You obviously have lived through some really life-changing events, but you've both come together to produce The Survivor Squad podcast, which I find just kind of heartwarming to know that two survivors like yourselves can find each other and work together. 
Well, it's been really interesting and I can only speak for myself, but it's really great to connect with other survivors because it's a level up in your healing journey. It's also like, okay, I get to relate to all these other survivors and I'm not alone in this journey. That's interesting. We talk to survivors quite a bit. I don't think we've ever had anybody say it's a level up. And I'm just wondering, is that something that you gradually came to understand that there were levels? Well, there's lots of levels on trauma. I say, but uh, it's like an onion, you know, you're just peeling back more and more. Like, I don't know. There was one point where as a survivor, I was like, I'm the only one that went through something like this. And I wasn't aware of that. There's really true crime stories out there other than mine. (laughs) Like not to sound egregious or anything. It's just I was in my trauma and I wasn't watching other true crime shows or anything like that. So I didn't have that awareness. I worked more on the scripted side of things. So I was just like, I like the scripted side of things. And that's mostly made up. But they do pull a lot of inspiration from true crime stories. So I think the level up is just like each step in the healing journey, you get to like another level. Or you also get step back a couple levels sometimes too because like there's things that come up and trigger you so it's really like you know like Mario Kart or Mario Brothers you get to a certain level and then maybe you get knocked down I love that description. Do you feel the same way, Collier? Similar, for sure. I think it is very easy to fall into a, you know, a solipsistic pattern of behavior when you go through these types of things. world revolves around you, and then once you do realize that other people have been through a similar circumstance, you're able to build a community. I think for myself, coming into true crime, I made a film about my life. I traveled around the world. I did a TED Talk. I was on numerous programs, and, and the thing that drew me to Tara was I was somebody who always took control of my own narrative. So nobody was making documentaries or stories about me unless I, they either came to me and asked or asked me to be in it or I made it myself. And so A Murder in Mansfield was my own creation, right? I was really taken aback by the fact that Tara wasn't involved in Dirty John. I mean, as far as it became this hit podcast and then it became this television show and they involved her in the process sort of after the fact. It wasn't that it was, they came to her and said, we want to tell your story. It was like, we're going to make a podcast. And all of a sudden they're like, oh, there's a podcast out. And I thought, wow, that's interesting how media can take these stories. These podcasts can take these stories as public record and do whatever they want with them. When I had interviewed Tara on my podcast last year, I was like, we really bonded over that. And then I started discovering more and more how other people have been, I don't know if exploited is the right word, but have had their stories told without their own input or direct involvement or even knowledge for that matter. And that is what really made us kind of click together and be like, okay, how do we give survivors a voice that they have never had before? Or, you know, I hate that word survivors sometimes, but, (laughs) but it's very true. Like how do we give these people a platform, platform them in a way that, they feel that they're empowered. You know, it's almost surreal when you say that about these podcasts taking other people's stories and talking about them. Tim and I did that when we started. We were talking about one missing person, a young woman in New Hampshire, and we were fascinated by not only her disappearance, but by the people who were borderline obsessed with the case. That's how we started talking about it. We started talking to the people who were obsessed with it. And looking back on it now, would we have done it differently? Made sure, like reached out to the family and talked to them 
and made sure that you know they were on board with and supported us telling their sister's story or their daughter's story. It in the long term worked out. But I think it's really important to hear people like yourself saying those things because like it didn't really occur to us. We were so new to it. It didn't it didn't really occur to us how important it really was for the family until later on. And, you know, we've definitely made adjustments to commit to that now. There's no question about it. But to have people like yourself say that, I think it's important for people to hear like it's their story. We don't own that story. And it's interesting that you say that because like, I believe I know who you're talking about with this case. And I actually even talked to them before I was like, hey, you know, I'm connecting with these people and I want to just make sure, you know, you're cool with them and that you, you don't hate them or whatever. And she was happy to come on your podcast and like talk about it and stuff. So you know, we all talk, you know, it's great when we do because we're like, oh, yeah, we could trust these people. If you have a podcast and you made a story about someone, you can always, you know, include them afterwards or something and be like, oh, crap, like, you know, let's, you know, let's reach out to them. And that's exactly what you did. And so that's why I have respect for you guys. Oh, cool. I certainly wasn't looking for that, but thank you very much. Why now was the right time for you both to come together and launch this podcast? I have a little bit of a different approach and a different way on which I, a different lens as how I view this, this whole thing, because I come to this as a filmmaker, right? And I come this to this as a person who has been living this story since they were 11 years old and was on a mission to do something with it, right? So for me, you know, I moved, I dropped out of music school. I moved to Los Angeles. I became a filmmaker to tell my story. I would often look at true crime programs or true crime podcasts. And I'd be like, why are these people talking about this? Like, you know, if you, I don't know what the case is you guys were referring to, but you were obsessed over a missing persons case. Right. And they were obsessed over like people's reaction to that missing persons case. And I I was sort of like, (laughs) Nobody wants to be in my position. Everybody wants to talk about it. It's how it's super fun or whatever. But y'all, I mean, I don't know your story, but I, but I feel like a lot of people like they come from normal families. You know, it was a great line and as good as it gets. Good times, noodle salad, just not anyone in this car, you know. And Jack Nicholson is speaking about like how dysfunctional everyone is and and how. But some people have amazing lives with you know with no. Their father didn't murder their mother. Their mother didn't marry a, a psychopath who tried to kill their daughter. You know, so I often found it very interesting on people's why people were obsessed with true crime. And I'm like, I'm like, don't put this in your life because you, nobody wants th- nobody wants this. But I was like, people are obsessed. And then I met Tara, and we were talking. And then I got to know other survivors, other victims, other advocates. And it wasn't really until about six months ago that somebody says it was very poignant to me. They said, well, you know, Collier, the thing is, is you're looking at it all wrong. People listen because they're inspired, and they want to find solace in what you're saying. And the fact that you got justice for your mother. You got justice for what happened to you and your family, where there are other people that listen to this because they don't have any hopes of having that justice. They don't have any way to get that, to reconcile what happened to them or will never find out what happened to that loved one. And I thought, wow, that's really, I mean, it's so poignant. I mean, it was heartbreaking. But at the same time, I was like, oh, okay. And I guess when I think about it, I would often, 
true crime wasn't a thing when I was growing up. There were no such things as podcasts, but I would gravitate towards people's stories and be like, okay, how much, how much bullshit has this person been through? <laughs> Cause hopefully that'll mean that I'm going to make it through too. You know, when I started looking at it through it, through that lens, I was like, oh, I see why people do this. I, th- I still think there's a lot of exploitation in it. Absolutely. And I think, and I think part of the, the flip, the, the, the flip of that is like, how much money do some of these podcasts or, or pro- news programs or, or channels make off of exploiting other people's stories? And there's always this fine balance between journalism and exploitation. And you know, I don't mean to say that nobody should tell these stories because they should. It does raise awareness and it does give people hope and solace. But I think that specifically when you're bringing these stories out and you're talking about someone's case, you the more you let them talk about it, the better it is for everyone involved because conjecture is the worst part of all of this, right? When people begin to speculate and the online sleuths get involved and then it just spirals into this and it, and it just creates a lot of re-traumatization of people that don't want to be re-traumatized. And you were mentioning earlier when you said, Lance, how you couldn't you couldn't find anyone related to the case or, or didn't know if you could reach out to the family. Sometimes these families and these people don't want to be found. They want to be left alone. <laughs> you know, they don't want to share their story because they're still coping with it or they don't know how to because it's a lot to do it. This it takes a lot of effort and strength and perseverance and a willingness to do this because a lot of people and, and Tara and I are often excoriated for, for our contributions to all of this too, because they're like, we don't understand why you're talking about this. You're living every day. Like this is your life. And I'm like, no, we're sharing this information to help people. And this is part of our process. But of course you're judged and you're, you're lashed out because people, you know, they're all, everyone's having their own experience. Right. And their experience might be that they don't want to deal with their childhood trauma. They don't want to deal with the things that they've been through. So therefore they, they sort of, spew venom and vitriolic retribution on us for sharing our story. But at the end of the day, it's our story to share. And that was what we wanted to bring to the table with Survivor Squad. That's sort of where we were both mentally. I know that was a very long-winded <laughs> answer. but <laughs> Well, I also just have to add that sometimes survivors or victims of the family might be hard to find because they are not social media people. But if you get them at like the right moment, Sometimes they're like, okay, yeah. And then other moments they're like, no, I can't do this. You know, even when you guys contacted me a while ago about being on a panel, I honestly didn't have it in me to be on it then because I didn't realize how affected I was by that situation and how everything transpired. And then to be honest, I felt like people were taking my name and being like, oh, this is what happened to her. And then all the other victims were like secondary to that. And to me, that was like, I only came out with my story to support these other victims that may not be like the perfect victim in a sense. I know that we're going to see you both at Obsessed Fest this year, which I'm really excited to meet you both in person. How does that strike you, the sort of festival nature of Obsessed Fest, Crime Con? I don't know if you've been previously, but how is that for you guys? It's like a double-edged sword. I love connecting with everyone there. Collier, I'm sure, loves connecting with everyone there too. But sometimes it gets a bit too much, you know, because I don't like physical touch that much. Like if people come up and they're just like, a lot of people ask for consent and stuff, but then sometimes it goes beyond your threshold. And then you're like, oh, I need to go to a quiet room or something. And I think that 
just talking to Patrick. Patrick's like working to get us all that and stuff. And so I love that Patrick's working to get us that, having breaks for us. And But I love – I. I'm so excited about Obsessed Fest because I'm so excited about the drag queens, the bingo, um, all of that, the karaoke. And I'm excited for Crime Con too because it's all different crowds and everyone should be connected in a sense where everyone should listen to each other and everybody should just connect and be like, hey, you know, because when we connect, that's when we grow. And when we have these conversations, that's when we grow too. I did, you know, I, uh, as I have said, I'm, 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 I come to this from a filmmaker background. So I have been, I've been on the film festival circuit off and on for like the last decade. So for me, I love going to these events and talking to people. I went to CrimeCon last year and it was it was interesting to see because again, I just kind of look at people and I'm like, why are you obsessed with this? I don't understand. Like, like there's please don't think about murder all day. Like no one wants to think about that. You know, but then I realize, you know, and I would say, you know, the vast majority of these fans are very well intentioned and are very loving and very, very sweet people and are 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 very impacted by our stories in such a positive way. So it's wonderful. I mean, I'm also very excited for Obsessed Fest and I'm, and I'm excited for CrimeCon and I'm excited for what are we doing? True Crime and Paranormal Festival as well. And so we, we have a few things. I mean, I love it because I love to feed off the energy of like the crowd and, and like when people are engaging with me. It does get a little arduous when you're talking about your story every single time. And so it was a lot easier for me, like with film festivals, even if it was a murder in Mansfield that I was talking about, where I could just sort of segue into like the filmmaking process, right? Or the creative process. Because for me, I'm a, I've always been an artist. That's my, been my whole life. And so I can, if I can find a way to sort of dove, it's like an off-ramp on the, on the freeway. Like the freeway is just always talking about the trauma. If I can get off on that off-ramp, but still be there, I'm still close to the highway, but I'm, but I'm just kind of taking a little break over here, but I'll talk about this. You know, it feels a lot better for me because it, it is draining. It, 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 it is draining, but it's also, it's, it's very fulfilling. And it's, and it's also very heartwarming when people are really connected. And then you, you have people too that have gone through, you know, Tara and I will get a lot of messages of people who have been through really bad stuff. And I think probably that if, at least for me, like even when I made my film over the years, the overwhelming majority of people that would reach out were all sexual assault survivors, a lot of them childhood sexual assault survivors. And that's really hard. That's really, really hard to reconcile, you know, because your heart just goes out to them, but then they find such, you know, they find, they find such comfort in you getting justice and you doing something with your, being in action with what happened to you, sharing your story. They're really empowered by that. And that's, I think, very revitalizing and very energizing to know that. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Thanks to our sponsors, and now we're back to the program. A couple of uh, things about CrimeCon and ObsessFest that I'm curious to get your thoughts on. At CrimeCon, there's this whole, this incredible desire to learn. The people who, who attend CrimeCon, a lot of them go there primarily to learn. They want to learn how to defend themselves. They want to learn how to see signs for domestic abuse. They want to learn how to properly investigate a potentially contaminated crime scene. But the biggest part of learning is how to see signs of 
abuse and how to protect yourself in those situations. And the thing about Obsessed Fest is true crime's the entry point. The rest of it is like a family. It's like a huge community that loves each other. Oh, sure. That's very that's very apparent. Absolutely. Those are two very stark differences, for sure. And they both serve like amazing purposes. So coming around to a question, I promise. Did you become a filmmaker so you could tell your story in a way where you could remove yourself from your story? I mean, I, I literally became a filmmaker solely to tell them. Like, that was the reason. The entire reason why I literally packed up and moved to Los Angeles. And said, I'm going to do something with this story. I don't know what it's going to be. I didn't know it was going to be a scripted series. I didn't know if it was going to be a documentary. I mean, the film itself was a pilot for, for a docuseries that was going to be eight episodes. And mine was going to be the pilot. And then it was going to be, you know, uh, we had Michael Moore, um, uh, D.A. Pennebaker, um, uh, God, supersize me, Morgan Spurlock, uh, a bunch of other filmmakers that were going to do different acts of violence like different because it was about the ramifications of violence and the consequences of violence that's at the core of and about humanity of what a murder of mansfield is about it's not really about the murder of my mother it's about the impact of that murder the impact of the events right and so i was very passionate about that and that was something i was talking about since i was a teenager i brought that out with me and i was like i'm gonna figure it out it's like okay i'll learn <laughs> okay you know and i worked in front of the camera for years and then i then i wanted to get behind it and because i was like I got, i've got to figure out how to do this I, i'm gonna produce this I'll, I'll figure out a way to make, to make this that was the driving force i know i don't know if i ever saw myself in the story i mean sometimes i did sometimes i didn't it just depends on how it would land i guess i'm gonna take this this is gonna be a, there's gonna be a purpose for this and it's gonna be able to i'm gonna be able to share this with the world to have an impact and also just to put it to bed it was like once i can put that little button on it and just go okay cool done that check that off the list done now i can get all the rest of my life how do you sort of hone this community of survivors? And part of the question is, how do you find your guests on the podcast? But I'm just so curious because it does seem like you have sort of a kinship with the folks that you speak with. I'll take this one since I actually find most of the guests. I think I've found like 98% of them. But I literally like I have so many friends in the true crime space. So I'm like, oh, yeah, you want to come on the podcast? You want to come on the podcast? Because of my story, people come to me and they share their stories. So I have like stacks of people. Oh, YouTube, the Today Show has a lot of guests that come on there. So I always like, okay, like that person, okay, got their full name, trying to find them. And then I go through like this whole of like how to find them. And for like Rita Isabel, that was really hard to get, to be honest. We met up with Vice in New York. And then they told me that they were having her. And I was like, I've been trying to get in contact with her for a while. It was really interesting how people will even send us guests. People will be like, oh, this person, you should connect with them. And then it will be like a huge case. I won't even really know, to be honest. Like, Kelsey. I knew Kelsey for a while and I didn't know that her case was so huge. I was just like, I want to connect with her. I want to talk to her. She came on and it's one of the most researched case than John Benet Ramsey. Yeah. She's talking about Kelsey German from the Delphi case, which I didn't know that Kelsey was involved in the Delphi case because I just kept hearing about Delphi. Delphi and that was a, you know, obviously a small town in Indiana. I grew up in Ohio, so I can kind of relate to that, but I didn't know anything. And then when she started talking, I was like, Oh, this is the the thing that everybody's 
talking about right now. <laughs> We're right in the interview. But yeah, I, I think, you know, and to, to, to Tara's credit, yeah, she does get, I, I don't know about 98% of the guests, but she gets a lot of the guests for sure. It, it's been interesting to have kindred spirits because, you know, it can be very different when you're interviewing with someone who hasn't been through it with you and you kind of have like these sort of canned answers you have for people because they're all going to ask you the same questions. Then you talk to someone who's been through it and you can just make these sort of very inappropriate jokes that a lot of people would find like, I can't believe they said that, but we think it's funny because we've been through it. You know, you know what I mean? Like it's one of those, it's one of those situations that we can have that inappropriate humor with our guests and, and we can all laugh. So we're laughing for our audience in a lot of ways because they would feel like, oh, we can't really laugh about that. One of my, well, our friends come on, Lola, and we haven't aired her episode yet because we want people to get to know us a little bit better. And I also joke about like, if I wanted to be a cult leader, like what do I need to do? And I would never become a cult leader, but my cult would be like, oh, everybody has consent. Everybody could do what they want. So, you know, it's not really a cult. (laughs) Well, and and she's referring to Lola Blanc, who hosts the Trust Me podcast, and she's a survivor of the, uh, her and her mother are survivors of the FLDS, the um, Fundamentalist Church of Latter-day Saints. You know, we had, we had on Brielle Decker too, who's the, you know, was the subject of the Prisoner of the Prophet, which was on Discovery Plus, and she shares a lot of stuff. And it's interesting with the cults. The cults really get us. We had Mark Vicente on, he's going to be on a future episode who was involved with the Nexium cult. You know, he was a victim of that. They just Today, they just released Allison Mack from prison, who is the chief grooming officer, I suppose, of uh, Nexium, <laughs> uh, the Hollywood actress that was on Smallville. So um, we find these little, <laughs> these little commonalities with our guests that are very entertaining to us, uh, where other people, I'm sure, are just like, what are they... How can they laugh about such things? But it's like, we're, we're allowed to do that. We've been through it. <laughs> a little laughter to break the ice or to enter into the conversation that's going to be difficult is super important. It's good that you identify that. Let's have a laugh before we get into the dark stuff. Or more importantly, like, let's have a laugh about the dark stuff is really what it is. It's not an, it's not an icebreaker. It's we'll be halfway through it and it will be, be, I'll be like, well, you know, at least my dad didn't molest me. He just did that to my cousins. He just murdered my mom. You know what I mean? Or I'll say, you know, he would have, he could have taken me and, you know, throw me in the hole. It's nothing to make it a little bit bigger, you know, and say he left with the kid or she left with the kid, you know? So it's like a lot of people find that morbid, but I think it's kind of funny, but yeah, we'll be writing conversation and we'll make those sort of offhanded remarks that people are like, Ooh, that's a good point. <laughs> no, that's some gallows humor. And I get it. Like, I, I feel like I'm not allowed to laugh at that, but I get the humor coming through there. You mentioned uh, one of your guests, Brielle Decker, who was in a cult and she mentioned in that conversation that she and several of the members of the cult didn't believe in it at, at a certain point, but stayed in it because they were afraid to try and leave. That moment kind of blew my mind. I was just wondering if you had additional insight on that. Yes. So it's called coercive control. It's when you're basically emotionally manipulated by this person and trauma bonded to them. And you may not be able to like you don't really agree with them with certain things but you're tied into this because if you leave people will come after you you know if you leave you're just gonna get disowned like you know so many things will happen if you leave so if you leave that is actually unsafe and so when you're navigating through your nervous system of what 
can I do to get out of this toxic relationship? Your nervous system is telling you to stay because it's weighing like the, if you leave, you're going to get killed. And so you're processing, if I stay in this, I'm going to get killed. If I leave, I'm going to get killed. And it's this coercive control of this ties that the abuser has on you that are these emotional ties that may not be physical abuse, but are just like, you can't leave because if you leave, your whole world is shaken. Like, imagine if you are in a toxic relationship, you have kids, you have money, but you don't work. You're taking money from your partner or whatever to live this lifestyle. Like, the same thing happens with this emotional control, the coercive control. And if you listen to Real Crime Profile, Laura Richards, she talks more about it. And then there's, like, a couple other people out there that talk a lot about it, but I actually got a law passed in California, Senator Rubio did with our story for coercive control because sometimes more dangerous to be in this coercive control relationship than physical abuse. And that may sound weird to people, but it can be more dangerous at times. And they're both dangerous though. Yeah, have you guys ever seen the M. Night Shyamalan film The Village? There's the fear of if you don't leave the village, then obviously, you know, spoiler alert, if no one's seen it in the last 20 <laughs> years, they, they, one of them gets out and there's a highway and they think that you think that the whole time they're in like the 1700s or something, but it's really present day. And I think in a case of, of like Brielle, when she talks about the people who were in the fundamentalist church of Latter-day Saints under Warren Jeffs. You know, these people who grew up in the church, that's all they knew from birth. So the outside world is scary and they use these, as Tara says, coercive control using fear and intimidation tactics. The great equalizers of all religions is the concept of the other. It just is. And it also happens to work with cults and relationships. It's us against you. Unite against a common enemy is a very big form of manipulation. And we see this a lot across our guests, whether they are in an abusive, you know, physical or emotionally abusive relationship, whether they're in a cult, whether they have suffered some sort of extreme violence in their in their lives and been traumatized that way. It's a very common thread, unfortunately. They make you afraid of everything so you don't go to these people, you don't reach out for help. You're isolated, literally. And in the case of someone who's so young, who's brought into that world, that's all they know. So when law enforcement is saying, hey, we're here to help you, they're like, no, you're scared of that. It's like an alien came and visited. You know what I mean? Because all you've been taught is that everyone is bad except for us. And then they break up the with the rude reality, the stark reality that they're breaking the law by marrying an underage girl. It's not just morally wrong, it's against the law and you're going to go to prison. That was one of the unfortunate things that she was talking about with, specifically with Brielle Decker is her uncle going to prison for this. He just was going along with it because he had no choice. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program. You both bring up these amazing points. And you mentioned, Tara, that you got a bill passed in California. Did I hear that correctly? That it was a bill passed in California? Well, like it was Senator Rubio that got the bill passed and everything. She used our story. And my mom like called her, my mom's assistant at the time, like called her and called her and called her and was like, you need to listen to this story. Please help make a law with this. And also Laura Richard like pushed that out too. And she's really like the connector of it all. And so that's what helped get the bill passed. That's amazing. I think that's important for people to hear because we do talk about that, you know, engage with the representatives of your state in order to get these bills passed. I think, Collier, you brought up 
if the police show up. And that made me think about when police show up at domestic abuse situations and they're so easily persuaded out of doing anything because it's not being done right at the time. And we hear a lot of stories like that as well, where you can have all of the photographic evidence of the damage, but if it's not witnessed at the time, then we can't really do anything. What's your thoughts on how to re-educate law enforcement when they are arriving to the scene of these domestic abuse calls? Well, there's a couple of things. And I realize a lot of education needs to take part in law enforcement when it comes to interacting with the public. We've seen a great many cases come down over the last five years that have suggested as such, right? Whether it be George Floyd or whether it be, you know, a domestic assault case where someone is, you know, then and then murdered, you know, because it wasn't responded to. But the flip side of that is there's also this other shoe that seems to drop, which is law enforcement's hands are often so tied because they've been litigated against so vehemently. So you have lawyers who've represented perpetrators who have been able to enact change through the legislatures. So it makes it easier for these perpetrators to commit their crimes or wage their war on individuals. And I would say the most recent thing is the overturning of the stalking case in Colorado last week by the Supreme Court last Wednesday. The verdict in saying that, you know, with stalking, you know, it, it needs to prove that they know what they're doing, that their intent is to cause harm, because if their intent isn't to cause physical harm to you, you know, a lot of the times the response the, the response of the police is, well, you know, let us know when he kills you. I mean, it's, it sounds so morbid and so horrific, but it is true because it's like when you're law enforcement, okay, if we take this guy into custody, then we get sued or then we don't have this. And, and again, there needs to be better understanding. And I think a lot of that has to do with some of the changes that are happening in police departments across the country, which is more involvement of psychological officers that have, you know, a degree in psychology or social work that are able to come to situations and help diffuse. It's really just cross-department cooperation that leads to this. But unfortunately, the way things get politicized in this country so easily is, you know, one hand doesn't, you know, the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing a lot of times. And this is the the classic case of the red tape of, of the government in general. Yeah. Well, and I hate to even say this and I hate to be like this, but no offense, but it happens to 90, like around 90%. It's like a high number like that. Don't quote me exactly on that number, but it happens more so to women than it even happens to men. And I've been in several instances where my friends were being abused by men. I've had uh, other people just reach out to me because what I do. I've called the cops on several people before. I've been there when I've saw like my old friend group was super toxic. I saw literally one of my old friends push his girlfriend into the car glass and she slammed and she hit her face and was crying, emotional, distraught. He was physically abusive with her time and time again. So I called the cops that time. They show up and this is always what they do. They ask the girl, what's going on here? And because the girl is most likely in this coercive controlled relationship, she goes and she has her abusers back. And this is the commonality. And I think that in these situations, even though you can't 
force her to press charges, I think that there needs to be an initial call. And when that call happens, they take that guy and they separate him, put him in the car, get information, and they truly separate the two because in all the instances that I've seen, and this is the state of California, they were not separated. They were in the other room and they did not feel safe to completely say. And then also the guy would go tell the girl in this instance, don't say anything. The cops came here. You better not say anything. And you know what? She doesn't. But then she'll slip up and she'll say something that's a little bit of a red flag and they don't arrest the guy, but she gets beaten later. You know, and this is the constant cycle where I think they need to do something more when there's a call. I think they need to separate the guy from the girl in a different area, in the car, somewhere. And that's a start because this is a serious thing. And when these calls are made or if there's like a certain amount of calls, I think that they need to be taken into custody or something. That is just going to help so much with safety. Also, Cops, a lot of the times, don't know how to talk to these victims and survivors. Where I've been talked to so many, I've had so many experience with cops. I can remember one or two instances where I was talked to appropriately and with respect. Like when I called about John, when he said that he was going to put my sister in the ocean and stuff, they were like, oh, yeah, no, I don't even know why you called us. Um, You have to have like three harassment suits for this. Yeah, this isn't anything when it's actually a direct threat on our lives. So I think that law enforcement needs more empathy when engaging with these survivors and victims. And it has to be backed up by common sense laws and lawmakers. When you have people who are in power, who are responsible for creating these laws that don't have a background in this, they come from an upper class family that might not have this sort of a abuse or might have the abuse, it might have the cycle of appease and don't say anything and guilt and shame and et cetera, et cetera. They'll tough it out. They'll figure it out. So they don't they don't enact laws. And I think that generally, I think when you look at law enforcement, I mean, when I was in school, you know, we had safety town or whatever, but I don't know why <laughs> there aren't classes to educate people on how to talk to the police. And I know that the police must get some sort of education in dealing with the public. I think that's part of their, whether or not they're the best at it, you know, is obviously left up to interpretation. But I do think that even, you know, civilians engaging and learning how to interact with the police in a way that they feel safe and it's not a threat, especially people from underserved communities, marginalized communities, people of color, need to know how to talk to the police. And the police need to know how to talk to them. And when it comes into engaging, engaging with women is recognizing those signs. They're lying because they're because they know that once you they leave the police cruiser and they go back in there with the boyfriend, they're going to get the shit beat out of them. Well, and then I always revert back to this one show, Unbelievable, on Netflix of the difference of how the police handled these two cases. It was essentially like the same perpetrator. One cop took the girl aside, made sure she was in a safe spot. And she was also a woman cop. So that was helpful. In my opinion, she went, took her aside, made sure she felt safe, told her like, hey, we're in a safe spot. I'm here for you. And that was the difference where the other cop was a male cop. He really didn't believe the victim and stuff. And it was such a difference. And if you are a cop and you want to learn how to engage a little bit more, go watch that show and take notes. 
You mentioned in one of the episodes that you've got a uh, a coaching seminar. You mentioned about something about the nervous system and how it reacts to trauma. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, so that might be like two hours. Um, so let me give you like the short sense. <laughs> so we have this nervous system, our automatic nervous system, and it's like all these cords, well, like these branches in our body that connect to everything and like our sensors and all that. I'm not a doctor. So our trauma responses are fight, flight, freeze, and fawn, which now the fawn is being trying to change into appease because a lot of survivors don't like the word fawn. And when we go into our fight mode, that's like, you know, fist, yelling. These are what helps us in like is a predator comes at us and then we're able to identify what to do to protect ourselves. Where in my attack, I had to go, actually went straight to flee mode. I tried to run away because I knew in my circumstance that was going to be the best benefit for me to survive because he was a big guy. And then I was unable to detach. So that enabled my body, my automatic nervous system to go into fight mode. And so I fought. And then when your nervous system goes into like these modes, other things in the body kind of slow down, like your digestive system slows down. And that's why trauma survivors might have a lot of issues with like stomach digestion. And also like your nervous system can affect like the immune system too. And that's why a lot of survivors have like autoimmune disorders because we're always on hijack with our nervous system with being survivors because we had to get to that state to survive and be here. And so it's just regulating all the nervous system and stuff and learning about what our bodies are doing when we get to those activated states. I feel like that's a crappy version of explaining it. You just need to come join, learn about the nervous system because I tell everyone, everyone's like, oh, you know, healing is not linear. And I absolutely agree. But if you learn two things. You learn about the nervous system and you learn about your trauma responses. That's going to help tremendously. And breath work, learning how to control your breath because a lot of the times we are not breathing correctly as human beings. We just like, I guess we just didn't learn that, you know? So we really need to breathe out of our diaphragm and our stomachs compared to like our chest because when you're breathing out of your chest, that contributes to all this tension in your neck and that's where you're carrying a lot of stressors and stuff. So you really got to breathe through your stomach compared to like your shoulders, your chest, you know? We do trauma courses, uh, Collier and I, and then I also do trauma coaching on the side as well. That is truly fascinating and puts things into perspective in terms of people that I know, someone who's celiac. And I was, when you were saying that, I was thinking about it and I was like, I know this person had been through trauma. She hadn't always been celiac. It started to like click. And then that's like the importance of that is how, how someone who hasn't been through trauma views people who have. And then you have this science breakdown of like, why is this a byproduct? I think it's hugely important to educate people like that because it gives you a much more like informed view of your community. Thank you. And I think it's something crazy, like 60%, don't quote me on that again, but like 60% or something, people go into the hospital for stress. Imagine if you just learned how to deal with your stress and your trauma responses. You've been throwing out a lot of percentages that we're definitely (laughs) quoting you on. I need to look all these up. I should have like a sheet, but it's like around those, you know? Yeah. Don't quote me exactly because I'm 
<laughs> I'm not saying those are the numbers 100%, but it's like in those ranges. The whole stress thing is crazy because it can pop up years later and people have no idea why they're having an anxiety attack. They're like, I don't know, everything's great. Like all of a sudden I'm in the middle of a traffic light and I can't seem to figure out how to operate my, my car. Yeah, well, the brain compartmentalizes the trauma as well. So say you don't remember a certain thing, but your body's feeling a certain way about something. Like for years, I didn't realize that I was actually a sexual assault survivor until I started, like I literally worked through my trauma with Dirty John and all of that. And then I had these memories come up and I'm like, that's so gross. I don't want to have these, but it makes sense. I don't like this person anymore. I always had a weird feeling about this person. Well, you also conferred with family, right, Tara? Yes. No. And then family, my uh, sister unfortunately had these memories as well. And so it was just like, oh, wow, like more trauma, more things I need to deal with. And then it makes you realize that these triggers in your trauma responses are also geared towards that trauma as well. How does somebody overcome like the shame that they feel when they realize that that's happened to them and they have to talk about it? Because that's a big part of it is you feel like you're the one that's to blame or however people are going to view you now as like, you know, the survivor of a sexual assault. How do people get through that shame part? I think it's very helpful to have a community of people that understand as well as a therapist of some sort that understands trauma. When you go to therapy school and I have so many friends that are therapists they all tell me like how do you navigate this with your trauma how do you navigate this I'm like you went to school like why wouldn't you know this and they're like oh well we learned about the DSM we learned about this we don't learn how to do that like we don't learn how to cope with trauma and so I think that it's really important to find someone out there that understands trauma and then have that as a, what's it called? A mentor, like kind of like a mentor in your healing journey, because you really need someone that understands trauma more than you do. I think it's interesting how you phrased your question, Lance. You're like, how do they deal with the shame? Why is there shame at all? Why is there shame at all? Why are we even discussing that? And I understand that that exists and people do feel shame. That is a massive part of all of this. There's a massive component that, that uh, not enough people talk about in the right ways, in my opinion, which is this stigma of shame. Okay, so I'm ashamed of the way he treats me, so therefore I'm not going to report him because I'm somehow at fault. I'm ashamed with myself for doing the right thing because I testified against my father and put him in prison. I'm ashamed because someone tried to take my life with a knife in a parking lot and I had to take his life instead, and I didn't want to do that. You know, we are so quick to excoriate or lambast these people who have been in these situations for doing the right thing and for doing something that I think that all of us would do if we could, if we had the strength to do it. It's interesting, and, and we then cast this, this, use this word shame as if it's so interchangeable with everything. And this isn't meant to be like a Brene Brown talk or anything of that nature, but it is meant to say that I think that we ought to start maybe removing that word from the conversation so there is no shame in it. There is nothing wrong with standing up for yourself. There is nothing wrong with saying enough is enough. And I think for me, in my personal journey, that's where I got. Straight away, from the morning that my mother was missing, December 31st, 1989, and when I knew that my father had murdered her, this is not going to stand. Like this stops here because there's intergener the intergenerational trauma is what 
really leads to a lot of this. It's a systemic problem in a lot of ways because it's ingrained in us and we share that. And when you make that decision to say, I'm not going to be that person. And that was my quest as a filmmaker. Did you ask about that at the top of this? Like what were some of the things that I was processing and did I, did I see, my, see it, myself in it? A lot of it was I needed to process the fact that I'm not this man that sits before me in my film who murdered my mother and destroyed my entire family. And that was a question of itself in the filmmaking process, in that process of self-discovery, because, you know, it's not about the finish line. It's about the race itself. Yeah, that's a great point to bring up, just sort of eradicating that whole like stigma of, of shame and, and saying like it doesn't even have to be there anymore. I've just been thinking about it a lot since we had a professor, uh, Liz Yardley, came on and she was talking about how a lot of, not a lot, like most of the people who commit mass violence, like mass shootings, have a background in domestic abuse and typically they will kill members of their family right before they do the mass shooting within like a day or so or even hours and i had asked her i said well generationally like there there has to be something that's been going on with this person she answered and then she said and it's all shame the person committing the violent act is shameful for something and you know whatever that is so it's causing them to act in a violent manner as well. It's this incredible concept that needs to be really fully defined. So I really appreciate the answer on that from both of you. Like you said, it's a, it's a term that's just kind of loosely put out there and not fully analyzed. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. An hour went by. This has been a great conversation. Yeah. Yeah, this yeah. has been a really great conversation. Yeah. Thank you so much, Tara and Collier, for uh, spending some time with us today. We really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so the podcast is the Survivor Squad podcast. You can go to the SurvivorSquad.com to find that. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast from, Stitcher for the next month and a half. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, you can find me on all platforms, Tara Newell. I think Twitter, I'm Tara underscore Newell, but you can find me all platforms, Tara Newell. You can find me at Collier Landry on all platforms. And we'll put all the links in the show notes as well, and we'll uh, shout out the show in the intro, but great work on the show. I actually kind of forget that we were talking about your show because we were just having such a good conversation <laughs> about the nuances of everything that's involved with this. So yeah. well done on it, and we can't recommend it enough to our listeners. Well, thank you. Tim Lance, thank you guys so much for having us. Thank you.